at least in the minds of some. Quite a number of years ago, we came to Oklahoma City, began to work with the then 12th and Drexel congregation. There were a couple of ladies who were in their senior years in the congregation at that time. Both of them had the same first name, Laureen. Both of them made an impression on me. Laureen English was a sweet lady. Both of them were widows. Her husband had died quite a number of years earlier, Laureen English, that is. And she was a very precise person, very kind, very informed, very knowledgeable, but she liked things to be very precise and very orderly, very systematic. And if I varied in my presentations, such as they were, uh, and maybe went a little long, she might mention to me an opportunity to adjust what I was doing, kindly. Then there was Lorraine Summers. She was of a little bit different nature. Very sweet lady, very good lady. Her husband had also passed away several years earlier, very, from what I understood, a very fine Christian man as well. But uh, one day I commented, I said, it might have run a little bit long today. She said, it doesn't matter to me. What am I going to be doing? She said, I'd rather you just kept on going. Wow. I like Laureen Summers. I call the lesson, boil it down. That's why I tell you that story. Boil it down. That may seem to be an odd thing for somebody in the work that I often do. Boil it down. You may think that I don't have any clue about what it means to boil it down. I understand the cooking aspect of it, but we're not talking about cooking today. We're talking about how we present things. You you probably think that guy couldn't boil it down if he had to. I can look back at some of the lessons that I put together many years ago. I've got copies of them in notebooks and so forth, and they'll be good to start fires or bo- the bottom of the birdcage later on. But I've got copies that I look back, and it seemed like when I started, I felt like I had to cover every verse in the Bible that ha- even mentioned something about the subject at hand uh, in a way, and yet would run through those, and I was big on making sure that I gave you all the biblical information there was out there. Time going by, I realized I was probably wasting a lot of breath at the time and giving more information than was needed. We get that, don't we? Somebody says TMI, too much information. And so I offer this thought to you, and this is a little bit different, but I think it's an important thing because I think it relates to how we see God and what we draw from Him and how we apply His Word in our lives, and that's where it gets really important. And so I I offer to you, they say, they say, talk is cheap, and they appear to be right, unless it's the preacher preaching. And I've often leaned upon some the advice of those around me. And I remember as we were planning some event a few years ago, planning something, and the time was going to be very limited. And I was talking to the elders, or at least one or two of the elders and I were talking, and I said, you'll have about five minutes. And I I said, okay, all I've got to do is give an introduction. I I can do that in five minutes. And my dear and loved friend, Jerry Doyle. Some of you remember Jerry? Yeah, absolutely. And I love Jerry. Jerry looked at me and said, Russ, I don't think you can say your name in five minutes. (laughs) I love that guy. It was funny and it was exaggerated, but it rang with a certain amount of truth. So let me say something in my defense. When you have spent the greater portion of your life trying to communicate 
information to people, whatever that information may be, it is easy to become unnecessarily, let me put that word in there, unnecessarily wordy. So let me turn our attention, kind of bring this in to bear. Perhaps most of us have heard of the Gettysburg Address, talking about Lincoln's address at Gettysburg. If you were like me, you, you even had to learn it, maybe even recite it when we were in sixth grade. We had to recite it in our speech class, the Gettysburg Address. Don't ask me to do it today. I might get two or three words right, but that's about as far as I would go. But I was thinking about Abraham Lincoln's very short speech, and it is noted as being one of the true gems, not only of addresses or speeches, but it's a, one of a national treasure. The speech was given at the 1863 dedication of the, the National Cemetery at Gettysburg there in the midst of the Civil War. What, you, what I want you to note is not only, it was not only the, not, it was the, it was not the only, you try to say that, it was not the only speech that was given that day. There was a lot of pomp and circumstance. There was another man there giving a speech, Edward Everett, noted and somewhat senior speech maker, and so forth, gave a speech prior to Lincoln's address. It lasted for, this might make you feel good about me, it lasted for two hours. His speech lasted for two hours. And it was hailed as a marvelous presentation given in a great way. That was not uncommon in those days. The president's brief, very brief speech was so short and realized they did not have the means of address and the public address systems that we have today. But the speech was so short that many of the people barely knew that it had begun when it was over. Still, it didn't take very long. First addressed as a big mistake, a mess, not a good speech. It didn't take very long before it was noted as the masterpiece that it is. But I want you to notice this. That Edward Everett soon wrote to the president, and here's what he wrote to President Lincoln. I should be glad, he said, if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours than you did in two minutes. What a thought. Now, as they kind of go through this course of history and leading up to where I, I want to go, we're going to see a little biblical history in here for a moment. So if you bear with me, it's going to, I think we're going to come to a point. But I came across this years ago, and maybe you've heard it before as well. I don't know the author. If you do, then, then good, but it, it's well over 100 years old. And it says, whatever you say, my friend, whether witty or grave or gay, Contents as much as ever you can, and say it the readiest way. And whether you write of rural affairs or matter and things in town, just take a word of friendly advice. Boil it down. First time I heard that was from one of my teachers when I was a student in a, in a preaching class. But every place, group, school, or family business, club, or organization has some rules and this kind of leads us in that direction. There are things that you do and there are things that you do not know, do if you want to be accepted by that group. Mostly, I think we are, most of us are a little bit like Joe Friday. That'll stretch it for some of you a little older. 
We don't always want the whys, the wherefores, the implications, the exaggerations, and explanations. If we expressed it in words, we might just simply say, as Joe Friday would have said, all we want are the facts, ma'am. It is true that we often use more words to clarify and explain, but succinct simplicity generally holds the best truth. One passage came to mind. As Jesus said in John 16 and verse 12, I have, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Oh, if preachers could only learn that. Give them what they can bear and wait for another time. Let me take you on a little biblical history here for a moment. Bear with me, and I think it'll be worth our time. I really do. And I'll I'll try to be as succinct as I possibly can. I'll try to boil it down as much as I can. But when we think about it, and we go back to the Old Testament in particular, and we draw it into the New Testament, we find that there were really a very limited number of laws. There were only a few laws. When God set Adam and Eve in that garden, when he set Adam in the garden, when he and Eve were in the garden, his instructions were to, to them were really quite simple, quite succinct. Tend and keep the garden. Eat of every tree except one. Live, be fruitful, and multiply. Beyond that, we don't know any instructions that were especially given to Adam and Eve in the garden. At least they're not recorded for us if there were more. Yeah, the implications would have been broader, but still, very simple and succinct. Or what about Moses? As Moses brought the Israelites to the mountain, and he went up to the mountain there, he received from God law. You remember how many things were inscribed on those tablets of stone? When Moses came down from the mountain, he carried only two stone tablets containing ten laws. And while much later Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And probably they expected him to draw from those ten He offered the idea and and elicited it on another occasion from someone else, but he said to love God. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. You might say, well, wait a minute, those are not on those tablets. Yes, but the implication of it, and it's embedded in every single one of them. Love of God and love of others is embedded in every single one of those ten that were on that stone. We recognize they were very simple. They were very straightforward. Yes, there were many things they needed to apply out of it. But when Moses came down from the mountain, he carried only two stone tablets. And I know he broke those first ones, and God gave him two more. But there were only ten laws that were given. Think about that. Can you imagine a nation living on ten laws? Towards the end of the time we call of the Old Testament, further, much further down, there was a prophet by the name of Micah. And he was addressing what the Israelites were doing and not doing. And he was very succinct. If you get to the sixth chapter of Micah, there's a familiar verse therein. In verse 8, it simply says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Three pieces of instruction. 
What does God require of you? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You don't get a whole lot more simple than that. Yes, each has broad implications. Let's do one more. When the rich young man came to Jesus, that rich young ruler, as we call him, came to Jesus asking his question. He asked Jesus what to do to inherit eternal life. What good thing might I do? Notice he says, what good thing might I do to inherit eternal life? You might notice that Jesus' initial answer was very brief. Obey the commands. In other words, do what you know God has told us to do. Keep the commandments. The young man's not satisfied with the simplicity of it. He says, well, basically, it goes with which one? Well, here are some of them, Jesus answers. But finally comes down to go sell and follow me. Even then, it's still very simple. Go put aside the things that would hold you back and come and follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. My friends, I want to offer to you that when we talk about that, there are only a few laws. Note that it is not a lack of understanding. It's not a lack of understanding or finding within them such a complexity that God's instructions are hard for us. But the application of even the simple is sometimes hard for us to be willing to do and we look for things that broaden it out. Well, what exactly do we mean by that? Such as the Israelites of old. We're told to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You're to rest and not do work on the Sabbath day. Okay, now we've got to define what rest and work is. And they created a whole structure of things about the Sabbath day. You see, that's what we do. We take the simple and we make it complex. We tend to take that proverbial molehill and turn it into a mountain of complexity. I was thinking this week, and I know it's a very different thing, but if I remember, it was Ronald Reagan's second State of the Union address. It may not have been a State of the Union. It was one of his State of the Union address. I don't know whether it's second. doesn't matter. State of the Union address. And I remember when he was talking about the budget, And he pulled out and laid this stack of papers. You remember that one? Laid that stack of papers on the table. I thought that was hilarious. I loved it. It was great theatrics. A lot of fun. I think every State of the Union address ought to be full of, maybe they are, but they ought to be more fun than they are. I think the president ought to get a a humorist to help him with his State of the Union address. But anyway, we'll, we'll leave that alone. But I just, I sat there and thought, wow. You ever read the Constitution of the United States? If you haven't, you ought to. It's short. It's not very long. It won't take you long to read it. The Bill of Rights with it. All the amendments still won't take you very long to read the whole thing. And what you're reading is the basis of the government of this country. The Oklahoma Constitution is much more lengthy. <laughs> different, different matters at hand. But you see, I think we tend to want to make things complex. We tend to want to look at them and try to to turn them into something that they never really needed to be. And we want to look at every possible thing because often we're looking for an out. We're looking for some way to slip by it. We're looking for some way that we can avoid just simply taking it for what it says and doing it. I think about Naaman. 
I think about Naaman when, when the word came from Elisha, go dip in the Jordan River seven times. That's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. You'll be cleansed of your leprosy. Naaman says, I'd rather go home and dip in the rivers at home if I was going to dip in a river. I don't want to go out here in this old dirty Jordan River and dip in it. I can just go home. I thought maybe he'd do something fantastic, come wave his hands over me or something like that. He'd brought money. He'd brought clothing. He'd brought gold. He'd brought all kinds of things for, to trade in order to get this. He wanted a complexity. And Elisha said, go dip in the river. Thankfully, the wisdom, the wisdom of servants said, if he'd asked you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? That's one that ought to go home with us, isn't it? That's one that ought to go home with us. If he'd asked us to do something great, wouldn't we, wouldn't we have done it? Why do we want to take it apart? Why do we want to pull it apart? Why do we want to figure out every detail that might apply that we could get out of or we could change or we could alter in some way? But I think that's kind of where Naaman was. But friends, the burdensome nature of lengthy explanations is generally preceded by our hesitance to apply the most simple things. Now then, we need to remember that God's messages are often simple to understand, challenging sometimes to apply because of our nature and our tendency to complicate them by our mixing of our own preferences. For several weeks, I've been trying to press the idea of our observance from our own perspective, our own observance of God and who he is, of, of his son and, and, and of the church. I've been really trying to press some ideas that I think we need. And I thought maybe it's time we, we take a step back and we say, we need to look at some of the simple things. We need to understand that there are many simple things, some of the simple things. I want to offer to you just, just very briefly a few this morning. There are more that we could offer to you, but, but it gets at the very heart of things. As we look at some of the simple things, it's, they're not hard to understand or hard to do. We tend to want to make them harder than they are. Now, I'm no mechanic. I'm no mechanic. The other day, I got to tell you, uh, uh, so this doesn't add on to the time. This is a sidebar. The other day, I changed the spark plugs in my car. You know, I, I grew up in the days where the plugs were right there on the sides of the engine. You had an eight-cylinder. You know, they're right there, man. You got your been thirty minutes. You had the plugs changed out. You gapped them, and everything had them ready to go. Did it a couple of times a year, probably in those days with all the lead and the gasoline and everything. Anyway, I went out to change change it, man. You start it, and it was a two and a half hour job to do that. You couldn't have done it. You'd had to be as smart as I am to be able to do that. But in all seriousness, you know, it did that. Took my wife's car to the mechanic and had him do it. He charged us, uh, well, never mind. It was, it was a sizable amount for him to do it on her car, which the engine's just like the one I had. But I changed it out, got it done, and you know, the car still runs. Thanks for YouTube. <laughs> but something, sometimes if you just take them at their simplicity, one piece at a time, one nut at a time, one bolt at a time, one screw at a time. You know what I'm saying? It's not that hard. I'm not advising you to do that yourself. I'm just saying sometimes that's the way it works. But I believe in the New Testament we have an emphasis on the simplicity and singularity that is there. 
Marty, you touched on this in class, and I thought it was interesting that you went to Ephesians 4, same place. I want us to look at that today, maybe from a little bit different perspective than we were in class this morning. But there is, by Paul's emphasis, a simplicity and a singularity that is a part of who and what we are. And we need to emphasize that. And I think when we do, we do away with some of the disparities that we might often find. Let me offer to you a few thoughts with, within that, and not in the order that Paul gives them in Ephesians 4 so much, but I begin with the idea where he kind of ends with the idea God is one. That ought to be there. Deuteronomy 6 said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Yes. God is one. Early in human history, people began to create their own gods. Often, often associated with elements that they would see around them in nature, in the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, fire, wind, whatever it might be. They were often associated with elements of the natural world. Maybe we have not gotten that far from it, and yet we've, we've changed. Maybe we're not looking at images. We're not worshiping the sun, moon, and stars nearly as much today. There are still people that do. But I think in the present thinking, we still create and generate our own gods. The prevalent god of the time is probably personal choice. But the Bible, if you're going to hold on to it all, if you're going to take the words of Paul worth anything, he says, God is one. And the Lord God said that of himself. God is one. If we begin there, we begin to find the simplicity laid out. For as a remedy for sin, we find that Jesus becomes Lord. He's sent as a Savior to die for sins and to, and to be the Lord of all. Not only is there just one Lord, Jesus is that Lord. That's the testimony of Peter on Pentecost when the Jews are looking at him. He says, this Jesus whom you've crucified, verse 36, what has God done? God has not only raised him up, brought him back to life again, but he has made him both Lord and Christ. We need to think about the implication of those words. The word Christ is simple. He's the Savior. He's the one that died for our sins. He is called that many times. He's the one that took our place, and there are words for that in Scripture. But notice he also said he is Lord. And we're not accustomed to that in this country so much, but we recognize the supremacy of a law. We recognize the supremacy of a position. The idea of Lord, he is the one, the supreme, the ruler. He's the dictator, if you want to say it that way. That's not, that's not the kind of dictators we see in the world today. But he is the one who presses forward the will that we are given As Lord, Jesus is the one we obediently follow. Paul said, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say he didn't hold on to his position, thinking himself above and beyond that, but surrendered his position, emptied himself out, took on the form of a servant human being, and died for us, was obedient to God, even to the death on the cross. When he had nothing else he could give, he gives everything. There is no more for him to give. And as Lord Jesus is the one, as I said, that we obediently obey. We look to him in the race that we run, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul presses the point in verse 1 when he says, Be imitators of me where you see I am of Christ. 
I'll set my example, but only what you see of Christ in me. Because he had already said so many times, it's not me, but Christ. There is one Lord. There is one Lord. There is no Pope on earth. There is no supreme ruler here among us. There is no head of an order, doctrine, discipline, coordinated group. There is none but Christ for the Word of God. And there is one baptism. I wonder if I've emphasized that enough. I think the world is more open to that word than it once was. And I think we've talked about it enough so you recognize that baptism is immersion. It is a burial and a resurrection. Paul emphasizes that in Romans 6. Baptism is something that is based on a person's determined faith to follow the Lord, buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. I think it's what Jesus was talking about when he said you must be born again. It is a part of the process in which one is born again. There is no contemplation in Scripture of anyone being a Christian without being baptized into Christ. We are all baptized into one body, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 12. Peter says, the figure like the flood, baptism does also now save us. It's a part of the process in which one in faith repents and turns to God, turns their life over to God. I know some have a a problem with baptism saying it's a meritorious work and it takes away grace. I don't think it even begins to be a meritorious work any more than somebody walking up to you and saying, I've got a bag of a million dollars. I don't know whether you can pick up a million dollars. It's not very easy, but I've got a bag of a million dollars and I want to give it to you. Just come over here and get it. They say, no, I can't come over and get it because then it wouldn't be a gift. Come on now. Is there a difference there? Think about it. Oh, man, if I have to get up and walk over there, then I've earned that money. Yeah, right. It's not about earning. It's about faith. It's about a determined life. It's about following him. It's about being his people. It's about living Christ. When Paul talks about becoming a Christian, he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what baptism is about. It's about the removal of the things that were human being and being born again into him. There is one baptism, he says. And the word is immersion. Baptizo, or the form of that word, simply means to be immersed. You've heard that. You know that. And there is, here it is, one body. One body. We are all one in Christ, or we are not in Christ. Do I need to say that again? We are all one in Christ, or we are not in Christ. The church is one body. In simplicity, Jesus said, is in response to Peter's great confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, I will build my church. Upon this, I will build my, did you catch that? My church. Not churches. And maybe that's, maybe that's something that we say, oh, Russ, you just make an emphasis where you don't need to know when he said my church, it's his. 
I live in my house. I have my family. I drive my car. We understand the meaning of the word my, don't we? This is my church, he says. So friends, I'm telling you, there is one God. There is one Lord in Jesus Christ. There is one baptism, and there is one body that is his church. There are plenty of other simple things that we can find in Scripture, but what I'm trying to say to us this morning is that we not take away from the simplicity that we find and we have within this. These give us a beginning point that I'm looking at today, but see the simplicity of God's Word, and therein we find that unity. I love the movie, Remember the Titans. Oh, maybe there's a few objectionable parts in it. You might say, I don't know. I I hate to put a movie before you because then you say, well, wait a minute. They used bad words or something. I'm sorry if they did, but I love the movie, Remember the Titans, not for for everything that's in it. Some of the acting, I think, is, is, is less. Some of it is outstanding. But I think it's especially the theme, the theme of bringing people together by the simplicity, the simplicity of using a team sport that tugs at my heart and brings tears to my eyes every time I see it. I just can't get past it. So what I'm offering to you today, if you and I, if we will take the simplicity of what God has given to us and the simplicity, and with that simplicity, apply it, we will find the beauty of the unity of the body, the church, that truly is, I believe, the design and the desire of God in the mind of Christ. That's what I want you to see. That is important. That has value to us. And if we hold on to that, the simplicity, keep it simple. Maybe that little note that said K-I-S-S didn't mean a kiss. Maybe it didn't mean keep it short, silly. Maybe it meant keep it simple. Super. We're going to sing a song of